This message was recorded at Devoted, a Christ Central Festival for all the family. To find out more about Devoted, please visit devotedevent.org. Great to be with you uh, this year. Um, this live zone is called How to Read the Bible Well. So if you've come to the wrong place, we'll all close our eyes and you can beat a hasty retreat and nobody will cast any judgment on you as you do so. Um, my name's Alan. Uh, I lead City Church in York. And uh, somebody pointed out to me that in the handbook it names my dog Mustard, but it doesn't name my son. Um, <laughs> It's not an issue of priority. Um, it's more an issue of protection. My son is called Zachary, and he's delightful, and he's seven. Um, we're a family of four. Just one of them is a canine, um, which, is, which is lovely. Um, what I'm planning to do uh, over these three mornings together is maybe a little bit different to what I've done in previous years, if you've been to a lifestyle that I've led. Um, I'm not going to stand here and lecture, um, because... Frankly, there's more exciting things than hearing me drone on and on and on for three morning sessions. I will probably get excited and teach and preach because I can't help it. Um, Ray Charles once said that music just bubbles up out of his soul. And and when I start talking about scripture, I find that it just... uh, And out it all comes in a manner like that somehow. Uh, What I would like to do for these three mornings is actually get you to engage with reading the Bible. Now, maybe you're an avid Bible reader, and that's great. You're used to that. Perhaps you're quite new to faith, and reading the Bible is a little bit of a threat. Perhaps it feels like a little bit of a prickly thing. I don't quite know what to do with this. I know that I'm supposed to read the Bible, but I don't quite know how to. Well, what I hope this morning is that, and the the subsequent mornings will give you some tools, some ways of approaching this, some ways of thinking about what we do. Um, It's not like reading any other book. And yet, in some ways, it is like reading any other book. Uh, And I hopefully will be able to show you how you can engage with Scripture in a way that will help you personally, or even if you're you're a preacher. And there's all kinds of motives, isn't there, for turning to the Bible. Some people turn to the Bible to find out about ancient religions, how ancient Israelites organized their worship. Some people want to try and discredit it. Some people want to use it to write essays, like me. Some people want to use it to write sermons. Some people are just looking for a word from God for themselves or comfort or encouragement, multiple reasons and motives for engaging with scripture. Uh, But I assume that because you're here, you want to learn and you would like to improve and kind of sharpen and get some skills and tools for engaging with that. Am I right? Okay. Well, not everybody thinks that. About a week ago, uh, someone who I know who will remain nameless and they're not in the room, good, um, and they won't listen to, the, they won't listen to this session because you'll find out why in a moment. Uh, somebody asked me, oh, are you doing anything at Devoted this year? And I said, yes, I'm, I'm leading a life sign. Oh, fantastic. Is there anything exciting? <coughs> yes, says I. It's about learning to read the Bible well. Oh, came the reply. That's not exciting. Ooh. Well, I beg to differ, actually, and all my righteous indignation rose up, and I managed to exercise self-control and not batter them uh, <laughs> with a Bible. Um, but it reveals something, doesn't it? It shows that reading the scriptures, this central part of Christian faith, this access, this witness to God that we have is sometimes neglected or it's deemed not exciting. And I sometimes feel perplexed 
when I come across a lack of interest or passion, if that's the right word for scripture, sometimes it's discouraging. Um, if any of you here preach at all, you will know that sort of feeling of looking out on a sea of faces or a crowd of faces on a Sunday and you're going for it and what's the, you're looking back at people who are, who are dreaming about their goldfish somewhere. Um, <laughs> Now, I know I'm a nerd, uh, and I'm a geek, and I enjoy this kind of thing, and I find it exciting, Uh, but some people don't. And I hope that what will happen this morning is that wherever you are in terms of excitement or zeal for Scripture, that you will be nudged forwards a little bit. I mean, if we think about it, this collection of ancient documents that we call the Christian scriptures has been banned by totalitarian regimes. It's been stifled in all manner of Western liberal agendas, and yet it's still the most popular book ever at five billion copies either sold or in circulation. It's enormous. I mean, believe it or not, it's more popular than Harry Potter. So it may be many things, but it can't be dull or important. There must be something about this collection in whatever format that's dynamite and is exciting and dangerous as well. So this could be a dangerous lifestyle. There you go. That's not exciting. No, but it's dangerous. Here's a little bit of a, a hypothesis. One of the reasons why... Well-meaning Christians find it difficult or don't like to engage with the Bible, or maybe even find it boring, is that they assume that they already know what it says. Okay? We live in an information age. How many of you needed to read the instruction manual for your microwave? Anyone? Wow. <laughs> All right, okay. But did you need to read it again once you read it the first time? No. Because you'd... All right, well, we'll, for the time being, we'll assume no. (laughs) We read for information often, don't we? Where's the information at? And then when we've learned the information, we don't need to go back to the literature anymore. And I think for many Christians, they learn the information. God loves me. Jesus died for my sins. Uh, I'm accepted with God by grace, through faith, etc. And in the end, it all works out well. That's the the message of the book of Revelation. Um, That simple one for you. There you go. You've got more than you bargained for in this lifetime. Revelation in a statement. Um, And so when we we think we've learned the answers, well, why go back to look at the the book again? We've we've learned it. We know that. Uh, And one of the scourges of my pastoral life is engaging with people and trying to pastor and counsel people with scripture and say, well, you know, scripture might say, da, 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 da. yes, I know that. But then clearly, really, you don't know that because if you really knew that, then all this stuff here wouldn't be going on or it might be taken with a slightly different uh, perspective. My wife, uh, Susanna, she is named in the handbook. Um, <laughs> she got the honor. Um, Susanna, and I've asked her permission to share this anecdote, so it's not, I'm not kind of just ragging on her publicly when she doesn't know. Susanna doesn't like watching movies more than once. It's this funny quirk. Um, She doesn't like watching movies more than once, even though she won't be able to tell you what the last movie she watched was or what it was about. And sometimes we sit down and the movie's on TV and she'll say, have we seen this? And sometimes I know that we have, and I just say, no. (laughs) Just so that we can watch it. Now, 
Nobody wants to watch Marley and me more than once, frankly. But, <laughs> but what about something more significant? What about, I, I could watch, have you seen Collateral Beauty, anyone? With Will Smith. Oh, my goodness. You should watch it. It's wonderful. I could watch that over and over again, and I would cry at the end over and over again. Um, I could watch Arrival on repeat, probably, because it was phenomenal. Inception, you probably need to watch about ten times before you've even got some idea of what's going on. I mean, I would even sit through Master and Commander a few times, like, with a large bag of crisps and maybe more than one beer. Um, but still, well, why do we listen to a favorite album over and over again? Why do we have one piece of music that lives with us, or one book, a novel, something that lives with us through our whole life? It's because we understand that there is something in the hearing, uh, or the seeing, and the re-seeing, and the re-hearing that does something to us. There's something transformational in the process of being exposed to beauty, and wonder, to literature, to art. There's something, to use a big word, sacramental about these things. We encounter God somehow. There's something about this that takes your breath away and is transformative. And scripture is actually designed to work just like that. It's not a book that you read once, learn the answers, and then put away on the shelf somewhere. It's not a book that you pull down for a quick proof text for something about giving or something else. It's a transformational thing. Let me do a diagram for you. I've got a whiteboard. And uh, if you're right at the back, you may struggle to see this. But let's imagine that we'll write Jesus here, okay? So we, we love Jesus. And the more we get to know Jesus, the more we actually want to learn about the Bible, Because we understand, well, hey, the Bible bears witness to Jesus. Hello. The Bible bears witness to this person of Jesus. So love for Jesus actually causes us to dive into reading the Bible more. And then the more we read the Bible, the more we understand the way that Scripture works, the more we see how it bears witness to the person of Jesus, we actually then love Jesus more. And then guess what happens? Because we love Jesus more, it sends us back again to the Bible and round and round and round. Now, this is called in, in posh, in, in the language of something called hermeneutics, which is about interpretation, the art of interpretation. This is called a hermeneutical spiral or circle. Some people call it a circle, but that sounds very flat. And what you have to imagine is this process going on and on and on and on. Love for Jesus increases our hunger and thirst for Scripture, which then increases our love for Jesus, which increases our love for the Bible, and round and round and round we go. And we grow and we develop. And each time we read through a text, we, something else jumps out, and we're changed in the process. Uh, my friend Phil here, we've had many a seditious conversation about Mark's gospel, and, and also about John as well. There's some lovely little places in Scripture that give you an insight into what Scripture is and what it's supposed to do. And at the end of John's gospel, John 20, verse 31, uh, John or the community or whoever is actually writing these words down says that these, Jesus did many more things that weren't written down in this book. Right? So Jesus did a lot of stuff. And then he says that these were written so that you may believe and have life in his name. Notice that it doesn't say these things were done so that you may believe and have life in his name. 
These things were written so that you may believe and have life in his name. Hiya, come in. It's all right. Don't, it's okay. Don't, don't, don't be embarrassed. You're 15 minutes late, but it's okay. Did you get the name and the number? Yeah, great. So here's this spiral. Okay? Scripture, these things were written that you may believe and have life in his name. We're sent back round to engage with scripture. And there's this wonderful hermeneutical thing that goes on, a transformational thing that happens. I'm sure you've seen some Pixar movies before. You know Pixar? Um, I probably have watched Minions quite a lot with a seven-year-old. Um, I heard Ed Catmull, who is the, uh, he was the, the, uh, the CEO of Pixar, I heard him speak at, it was one of the, the big Willow Creek Global Leadership summits that was happening in Newcastle. Uh, it was all on video. He wasn't actually there. But there's, Ed Catmull was being interviewed, and he said this fascinating thing. He said, people think that becoming an artist, becoming an illustrator, is about learning how to draw. He said, but they're wrong. It's about learning how to see. And I sat up, whoa, boom, that's really, really important. Becoming a great artist is learning how to see. And perhaps becoming a skilled reader and interpreter of scripture is a little bit like that. There is a technical ability to recognize black on white or red on white, if you have one of those Bibles. But then there's really learning how to see. It's not just learning what that word says when you say it, but how does that hang together with the other words? And what does the structure of this passage look like? And what does that structure mean for how we interpret that passage? And what does it mean that it starts with that verb and it ends with that verb? And what could be the significance of this funny sort of structure where there's like a middle point in here? And why does it go like that? And how does, why does he use that word there and not that word? And there's all these questions that start to Come when you begin to think about how this text holds together, what it means to actually think about the way the words are. And so what I want us to do today is to pay attention to what the words say. It's not to assume that we know what it means. It's not to come with a priest. I and mean, this is very, very difficult. In fact, it's, it's probably impossible to approach the Bible with a, uh, with, with a complete blank slate um, Sometimes people say, well, I just read the Bible as it is. Well, nobody does. Nobody ever does because we have all these presuppositions. There's all these ideas about what words mean. And remember, when you are reading your English translation, you are reading not just a translation but an interpretation because it's not as straightforward as just taking a Greek phrase or a Hebrew phrase and then trotting out an exact version. That's why there's different translations of the Bible. That's why, tip for the preachers here, if you're preaching a sermon, read two or three different versions of the scriptures on a passage that you're reading. It's quite surprising, actually. Maybe it will crop up as we do some reading together in a little while. So nobody comes without any presuppositions. And what I'm going to get us to do is read a text and try and just pick out the details I want you to think about what it actually says. I don't want you to interpret as we go along. I just want you to pick out and describe what is there. And then from that point of description, we're going to think about what it might mean. Okay? So we're doing this descriptive task first. What is actually there? 
What does it actually say? And then we're going to think about the meaning on the basis of that. Is that cool? Is that clear enough? Okay. So, if you would like to find a Bible, and if you've got a paper Bible, props to you. If you're using a device, that's okay. I'm still quicker than you at finding texts with my paper Bible, though, I'll bet. Um, And we're going to look at Luke chapter 24 this morning, and particularly verses 13 to 35. It's the story of the risen Jesus walking with Cleopas and his companion on the road to Emmaus. Now, this could be a little bit chaotic, and I don't know quite how it's going to work, but we'll give it a crack. If it falls flat, then I'll I'll just regress into lecture mode. Um, But let's get into groups of, I mean, however you want, twos, threes, fours, uh, and read, someone read it out. If you've got multiple versions of the text, or compare notes. And I just want you to do a very descriptive thing, be an analyst, Notice the details. I'll give you about five or ten minutes, and then I'm going to write, we'll write details on the board, and we're going to learn to pick out details in the text. Okay? Ready, set, go. Oh! What's the scripture? Well, uh, <laughs> whatever you like. <laughs> we're going for Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. If you're, if you're done, by car- I don't want to stop you, but if, you, if you're done, you've kind of, you're maxed out, just give me, just give me a wave or something, and, you know, I'm, oh, <laughs> it is. And uh, <laughs> you cold all the details out of already great. Um, okay. Let's call that a halt for a second. Everyone wrap it up. So what you've just done is the first step in, or one of the first steps in what is sometimes called exegesis. <gasps> so, yeah, you've worked hard, you've got your money's worth. I've devoted this to you. I've, I've, I went to devote and did exegesis. People go, what? Exegesis is a word that means reading out from or leading out from the text. Okay? You're paying attention to what is actually there, what's actually written. The opposite unhelpful word there is exegesis, which means to read into the text which is what 95% of us do most of the time when we read the Bible. We read into the Bible what we think it's saying or what we would like it to say, and then we miss what it actually says, or we twist it out of context because we think it says one thing and we miss it. So you've done some exegesis. Well done. Now, let's have, we're just going to, this could be amazing or it could be complete, a complete bomb. I don't know. Just hand up. Or yell out, what did you notice? Anything. Details. Give me details. What's in the story? Jez. So after Jesus' question, he says, what are you talking about? It's supposed to be some of the time that he's in all of them. And they stood there looking sad. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good detail. Um, sad. What? Walking away from Jerusalem. Okay. Great. Away from Jerusalem. That's a very important detail. Yep. Who's saying that? Oh. Yes, okay. That's also a very, very good observation. Okay, all the info. Yep, great. Didn't recognize. Yep, okay, so... Lack of recognition, yeah. Lack of recognition, yeah. 
They got a Bible. They got a Bible study. Yes. Uh, sadly, it's not quite as good today. Um, <laughs> Jesus uh, vibe stud. That'll do. Okay. Hold on one second. Let's just come to. Um, I like the irony that um, I usually only visit the people who are Yeah. Okay. Can I just put irony there? That's really important. Yeah. <coughs> Sorry, you're not going to be able to see. I'm right. I am writing irony. Just for those of you in the back, you don't have X-ray vision. There was someone who's talking over there. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. A rebuke. Yep. Yeah. Uh. Uh. Rebuke, yeah, good. Yes? Okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, again, yeah, very, very good observation. Yeah, so uh, one named... That'll do. Yeah. Good. Yep. Disciples, yeah. Not apostles, hey, but there were yeah, two disciples, yep. Yeah. All right. Two disciples. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. Um, Jay. That's Jesus, not Jagger, <laughs> or Jeremy. <laughs> Jeremy. I've always, always thought it was amusing calling Jeremy, you know, Jeremy Corbyn and Jeremy Clarkson. There's lots of JCs around, isn't there? <laughs> right, uh, spends the evening. Spends the evening, yeah, huh? Yeah, isn't that, doesn't verse 13 say, on that day? Okay, all right. Yeah, okay, so on that day, very good. On that day, fab. Whoa, okay, so put your hand up and I'll, yes. Oh, uh, hey, careful. You're interpreting. I, from what it's worth, correctly, but you're, you are interpreting. <laughs> yes, that is a very, very important detail. Breaking bread, yep. A long walk. A long... <laughs> yeah, yeah. How many days? That's seven miles, is it? Right, is that one or two points there? <laughs> Hello, yes. Mm. Right. Waited for invitation, yep. Whoa! Uh, yes, we haven't had you this. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Right. But that's the that's the observation. They return to Jerusalem. Yeah. 
Well done. Yes. Uh, yes. Sorry. Um, oh, same point. Okay. Who else? Uh, yes. I mean. Yeah, thanks for hopes. Hopes dashed, maybe. Let's just put that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hearts up. Oh. <laughs> Always going to get out of room this side. Oh, that was my idea. I've been in lectures at uni when you know, you're kind of wait for ages and ages and ages and you're about to chip in and somebody just rubs it off you. Right the last minute. <laughs> Um, hearts burned. Hearts burned. All right, good. Wow, man, are you very, very observant? Yes, this lady here. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. All right, I'm running out of space. <laughs> there is another side. <laughs> Acted as if. Da, 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 da. Okay. Oh, yeah. There's a hand up there, lady. Yes, you with the plum top on. Yep. Yep, okay. So there's a communication. Yep. Cool. Hello, yes, Dave. Yes. Okay, so um, it's what we call that the, the detail of in the text itself, the sp- specifics. Yeah. Okay. Apparently, it's actually not that that distance is not quite accurate geographically. And so it probably hints at the fact that interpreting scripture is a little more complex than we want to make it anyway, right? Interestingly. Yes, good to me. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Wasn't invited, no. Yeah. Yep, okay. Um, I think we've sort of touched that, haven't we? If I can, that's, that's good, but I'll leave it off because I'm, anything else? Hello, yes, hand up there. Yeah. Um, I'll come back to you in this one. Yeah. Yes. Vanished, it says in the, in the ESV, I think. <coughs> Vanished. Yes, you were. Yes, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, you summarize that for me in a. Timing apostle still awake. <laughs> 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 Don't go and try that on Jeremy's caravan later on. Jeremy! We've seen the Lord. Uh, okay, awake still. Let's. Ah. There we go. You'll see that. T. Shaw. 
little boy in the twos to threes in Burton Church. Ah, there we go. Well done. I hope it's nothing more urgent than a nappy change. <laughs> okay, right. Uh, anybody, who, anyone else? Just if you've got stuff you've wanted to say you haven't said yet, just do your hand. Okay, yes. Okay, break bread, yeah. Not here, not his house here. In Mark's gospel in chapter 2, the healing of the paralytic, that is Jesus' house though. Just to let you know. You can come and debate that out with me later on. The Greek says it was in his house, so literally. Okay, so uh, break bread. Why not? Why not? Why would you think he doesn't have a house? He has. Well, he did. That's why there's, there's an irony there when he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Because they've just ruined his roof to get into the middle of the... It's like, your sins are forgiven. You know? There's a little hint of irony in it. As well as his, you know, as well as forgiving sins. Any others? We are nearly out of space. Yes, oh, you're very keen. This had better be really good then. <laughs> I'm sorry, I should say. Yeah, okay, so he asks the question. Yeah, great, I, I like that. Jesus asks, by the way, I, my massive, if you're a school teacher and you're judging my handwriting, you're correct too, it's terrible. Okay, uh, we, there's a couple, any other things? How many have time? I've got plenty of time, that's good. Anyone else want to? lob in anything else you've done really 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 well very 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 good picked up loads of the detail of the text we're going to talk in a minute about what we do with all this detail okay? anything else before we move on sarah go on have you heard me preach before by chance? <laughs> maybe once or twice sarah's from our church um okay jesus is a prophet that's very important yep Jesus as prophet. Okay. Fabulous. Right. Pause. So here's the details, or some of the details. There are probably a whole load more uh, that we've drawn out from this story. And one of the ways, what I'd like you to try and think about uh, when you're doing this, and this is something that you can do and I'd encourage you to do by yourself in your own Bible reading. I mean, there's all kinds of ways of approaching the Bible, isn't there? Right? I try and read through the, the Bible, the whole Bible every year if I can. Um, and that's not something that you can sit down and spend hours poring over a paragraph. It's a little bit like having a shower every day rather than having one long bath once a week or something. Um, and it's just getting familiar with the story, with what's there. Um, but if you're going to dig down and really pay attention to a text, this is a great thing to do. Just notice as many details as you possibly can. But then there's three angles of approach. There's three ways of taking all this detail and information and starting to think about what you do with it. And there's three contexts, I guess, which are historical, literary, and theological. 
So there's a historical context. So in other words, what I mean is, when is this all happening? Well, we've learned, somebody's pointed it out, on, on that day, or the, the very same day. So this is the day where Jesus has, you know, it's, it's the same day as that the report has come from some of the women that Jesus has, is, the tomb's empty. Right? On that day, this is all happening, this, this journey, this story. Um, hang on, we're going to pause this for a moment, just to, it's pretty helpful if I, here we go, we have... M. Robertson, a little girl in the three to fours from the Wirral Church. If somebody would be able to go and collect, that would be lovely. M. Uh, M. Robertson. So uh, the historical, and then also what kind of expectations would there have been in the time when this was written? So it was picked up about the hopes, hopes dashed. What, what kind of hopes? And remember, these are, these are Jewish disciples so what does it mean to think about Jesus in the light of Jewish hopes? What were Jewish hopes? What were they, what were they waiting for? So it's kind of teasing out questions like that, about history. Um, the, the literary angle is to think about the way that the whole text is sort of, you know, how, 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 is this, how is it structured? Is there a structure here? Um, could you help me just fizzle this round, Phil? Fizzle it round, Phil, that's good. Okay, which way are we going? That way. As if by magic, ta-da! My swarthy assistant. <laughs> um, <laughs> I see I didn't say beautiful. I decided that wasn't probably not good. There is a, here, here's a little device. This, if, you, if you were reading, and some, maybe some of you might ever read, a, a, a Greek, um, like a papyrus, the text, the, the, the way that the New Testament was written, it's basically all in block capitals with no spaces. Right? So you might want to say, you know, if you can read this, um, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's just, there's no spaces. It's just blocks of block capital Greek text. Now, how the heck do you tell? I mean, it's quite hard. And you can read, you could read a paragraph in English like that and maybe just about there to pick it out. But reading Greek, how would you be able to tell where the emphasis lies? There's no punctuation. There's no speech marks. Uh, there's not even a, you know, not, there's even in Greek, there's, there's ways of asking a question in Greek. There's not a question mark in there. So how do you, how do you tell? How do you notice? Well, ancient writers used literary devices. Okay? They had ways of trying to show you what's the, what the point is or how they were trying to explain what they were talking about. One of those devices is called a chiasm or a chiasm. From the Greek letter key, which is basically ah, that's an X in our language, key or chi. And the idea is that you have, in a chiasm, you have a starting point and then a sort of symmetrical ending point as well. Uh, and then there's a midpoint too. And normally in a mid, the middle point of a chiasm, that's, that's the kind of the important point around which everything else pivots. Now look back again at the text. Can you see some repeating, other repeating phrases or concepts in this text? You've already drawn it out in noticing the details, but I wonder now if you can put it together in noticing the literary structure. I'll give you a clue. You mentioned Jerusalem. Where are they going away from? So Jerusalem is like, so it's a journey, okay? So it begins with a journey. They're going away from Jerusalem. Um, and then the end of the text is what? They return to Jerusalem. Okay. 
what does it say about when Jesus appears, when Jesus walks with them, what does Luke tell you? What does he say about them? Jesus came and walked with them, but they did not recognize him. Okay. What happens when Jesus breaks the bread? Their eyes are opened. Okay. So, hang on, I need to put this in here. Okay. Journey back. Journey back. Oh, dear, that's terrible. And then you've got somewhere in here closed eyes, we could say. And opened eyes. Oh, my word. I'm surprising myself with this handwriting. You've also got interactions with Jesus, haven't you? Right? Jesus asks a question. Jesus makes a comment. You've then also got in the middle. Here's the, here's the middle point. And it's kind of oblique. It's weird. It's not even like a, a statement. The middle point is the resurrection. Right at the very heart of the, of the, the structure of the story, uh, the, the disciples, Cleopas and, and the other, are explaining to Jesus uh, that some of the women arrived at the tomb and didn't find him there. Yeah, there's a report that he's been raised, and that's at the middle of it all. Okay? Really interesting, right? So it seems like you could say that the, the difference between recognition or non-recognition has something to do with, with resurrection somewhere in there, or the resurrection is a key thing for understanding. But, but there's more, because Jesus teaches them the scriptures, doesn't he? He teaches them how all the scriptures, all the law and the prophets, how they witness to him. And it says that their hearts burn. Well, they, they reflect later that their hearts burned when he taught them the scriptures. Their eyes are opened when he takes and breaks the bread. Now, that was a great reflection over there. That takes you into the bigger literary context of Luke's gospel. Because there's four verbs that are used. Jesus takes the bread, breaks it, blesses it, or takes, blesses, breaks, and gives. Okay? Four verbs. If you look back to the Last Supper in Luke 22... The four verbs, Jesus takes, blesses, breaks, and gives. If you go back to Luke chapter 9, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus takes, blesses, breaks, and gives. There's a suggestion in the way that the story is shaped, and in the way that Luke talks about open and closed and open eyes, the recognition of Jesus, discerning the risen Jesus, is a possibility for people who are willing to engage in this manner of life that Jesus has modeled both in his miracles and in the Last Supper that is an interpretation of his coming death and then also later in his resurrection. There's a thread that runs all the way through that from miracles, death, and into the resurrection life. The same four verbs. Perhaps... The possibility of encountering Jesus and discerning Jesus is self-involving. It's not something that you just go, oh yeah, okay, that's it, I know that. It involves something, maybe even something of a journey. Something of a journey from non-recognition to recognition. Something of a learning to understand even the scriptures, the law and the prophets in the light of who Jesus is. You see? The way that the literature, the structure of the text is really, really important for understanding what it's actually saying and what the meaning is. 
And I love that there's these little structures in there. Another great one is in, is in Mark's Gospel, the chiasm there, where Jesus kind of is, gets off the boat. He's just healed the demoniac in the Gerasenes. He arrives on the shore and Jairus comes and falls at his feet and says, have mercy, my daughter is close to death. Come and lay your hands on her and she will live. And Jesus goes, okay. And it's like a social contract because this is a really important, rich, important social guy. So he goes with the guy and then there's a woman who reaches out from the crowd to touch Jesus. And she's been bleeding. And the details are, and, 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 and. She spent all her money on physicians. And she got no better but God. And, and she's desperate. And she's unclean. And she reaches out, ooh, touches Jesus. And Jesus stops and breaks this journey, this social contract. And everyone's shocked. And he says to her, what? Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now, that's a daughter at the beginning and the end. Jairus' daughter, my daughter is sick. And then the daughter at the end. But the daughter in the middle of the story is the one who reaches out and touches Jesus. And she's the only woman in the entire Gospels that Jesus calls daughter. Isn't that beautiful? So there's two, a contrast of two daughters, but the one in the middle. And so you see how literally the structure of the text, you cannot separate the structure of the text from its meaning. The meaning is in the structure, if you like. And that's really, really important. Because if we don't start to think about literary structures, we might actually miss something of what is going on there. Okay? Let's talk for a few minutes about the... Um, we, we picked it up. Someone picked up that uh, they know all the facts about Jesus. Yeah? Uh, they do. Like, what, are you, you know, what were you talking about on the road? Oh, and by the way, uh, the, word, the word in Greek, when it says that they were discussing these things, uh, it's, it's not just like a, a chat. They were having a row. It's quite sort of heated. It's a bit of a, you know, an argument almost. I don't know whether you'd want to quite go that far. But they're discussing these things. And, and then Jesus comes and he asks, look, how oh, you are so slow to understand what the scriptures say. And so he, in, he, he interprets the scriptures for them. But they've, they've got all the facts in. They've understood everything. You read it through and it's right. They know that you know, Jesus was, that there was all these hopes attached to Jesus. We thought he was the one who would deliver Israel. Uh, all the facts about his death, about the burial, the, the whole lot. But that doesn't add up to recognition. And even when Jesus teaches them and shows them through the scriptures that they all point to him, they don't recognize, their hearts burn, but they don't recognize. And so a knowledge of the facts is one thing, but recognition and having your eyes opened is another thing. So you need more than just the facts, apparently, in order to recognize Jesus. And perhaps, even in this context of journey and everything, perhaps it's a suggestion to us, like that hermeneutical spiral, you know, that there's this process of not just facts, and that's it, I've got it now, like it's there and there and tick. But there's a process of facts and practice. Facts and self-involvement. Facts, scripture, and sacraments, breaking bread. Knowing the truth and acting the truth. Breaking bread with one another. And that very much speaks to a, a, a Eucharist, to a, to a sacrament, to breaking bread, to the Lord's Supper. I think, it's a slight digression, this is, Luke 24 has been one of the most important texts for us in York in terms of breaking bread week by week. Because there's this sense in which, notice here that Jesus is invited in as the guest. Right? 
the disciples think, hey, we don't know who this guy is, but we'll, we'll welcome him in as a guest. And when he gets to the table, he plays host. He messes it all up. Right? Now, in a, in a Jewish home, the head of the household is the one who blesses the bread and distributes it. Jesus takes over. Jesus completely takes over. And sometimes we talk rather loosely about hosting God. Stop. Stop. You are never, ever, ever, ever anything more than a guest with God. Ever. He's the host. And then when you think you're hosting, you're not. He's hosting you. He takes over and breaks the bread. And then when they recognize him, it's not, oh, we've got him. Yes, quick, get the sheet. Woohoo! <laughs> Kaiser Sotze. He vanishes. I think that this speaks to us in our charismatic world that we don't get to own and control the presence of the risen Jesus. We are never the hosts. We are always guests. All of this from the details of a story about two disciples. Now, here, oh, okay. And from two disciples to G. Chambers, a little girl from Stoke Church in the three to fours. Please, Hey, MG, oh, sorry, I didn't see the M. There you go, oh, there you go. the details are important. <laughs> oh, it's Jez's. Oh, sorry, Jez. <laughs> Off you guys. Um, let's, think about the, uh, let's think about the two disciples thing again. You noted that, that there's Cleopas and then another unnamed disciple. Why do you think it might be unnamed? Could be a woman, okay. If it was a woman, who might it be? His wife, okay? It could be his wife. Let's, let's hypothesize that, it's, that the woman is Cleopas's wife. Can you think of another man and wife in the Bible who have their eyes opened? Adam and Eve. And what are the consequences of Adam and Eve's eyes being opened? We got kicked out. Yes, that's right. Your father's eating us out of house and home. Um, <laughs> But Cleopas, yeah, that's a bad joke. Cleopas and his companion, if it is man and wife, their eyes are opened, and that leads to a return to Jerusalem and a proclamation that Jesus is indeed alive. Right? So one opened eyes in disobedience leads to death and separation. One opening of eyes leads to the gospel. Amazing. Now, not to blow that up, because yes, I think it's great, and it's probably one of those preacher's license points that you can sort of say. It doesn't say that it's his wife, so it is an assumption, right? It was probably quite a good assumption, but it's still an assumption. It doesn't actually say that. Some people say, well, maybe it's actually Luke, because sometimes, you know, New Testament writers, they sort of subtly put themselves into the story without wanting to give too much away. And some people suggest that it's Mark in Mark where, who runs off naked into the night in the Garden of Gethsemane. I think I probably would want to be incognito in that as well. Um, but nevertheless, maybe it's probably a bit more bit tenuous. I think it's probably most likely to be the wife, but... Again, it doesn't actually say that. So you have to be a little bit careful because otherwise you confidently assert, but you're asserting it on a silence in the text. And it's important to not fill the silences in the text with stuff. Okay? Still, I think it's a good point and it's, it's useful. Now, 
I was, I was going to talk about Jesus interpreting scripture. When a Jew in the first century, and this is very much Jesus as we're reading this text, speaks about uh, the law and the prophets, understand that he doesn't mean all the verses in the Old Testament, mainly in Isaiah and some scattered around elsewhere, that are proof texts for the coming of the Messiah. He doesn't mean that. The law and the prophets in a Hebrew sort of world means all the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. Now, the law, the Torah, is for what we call the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. And in a Jewish mindset, the prophets is everything from Joshua on. And then there's the writings as well, Psalms and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. So the, the prophets is Joshua and Judges and Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. And they understand, and, and the prophets, the we call the prophets. And they understand all of that as the prophets because the history books, as we call them, are actually history told from a theological perspective. So they're not just fact books. They're telling you about how God's worked. Right? So, it's, so it's prophetic. They're, they're prophetic books in that sense. So Jesus tells them the whole story of God and Israel in the Hebrew scriptures and says, it's all about me. Now, that's slightly problematic, isn't it? Because it's not, we don't know the details. Unfortunately, we weren't there. And many people have reflected ruefully, wouldn't it have been amazing to have been in this most awesome of Bible studies where Jesus shows you all the places, the whole of the Old Testament, where it's about him. Um, but nevertheless, it's important to recognize that you cannot understand the Old Testament without Jesus. But you need the Old Testament to understand Jesus. Okay? You see that? Oops. It's just <laughs> my alarm to remind me to pray. <laughs> Done. <laughs> you can't understand. You need the Old Testament to understand Jesus. You can't understand Jesus without the Old Testament. Isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't bring some message from beyond the grave? Some new teaching. He doesn't depart. From, in fact, he just he explains it all from the Old Testament. The question is, why do we need the New Testament? It's a cheeky question. Please don't tweet that. <laughs> Alan Rose turns unorthodox. <laughs> but Jesus teaches them from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, I know you because I know me. And the Old Testament is sometimes, <laughs> what do we do with this? this? This is so boring. Why do I need to know all these names of priests and things like that? Why all these laws and stuff? It all witnesses to Jesus. Now, it's not because that's quite tricky sometimes, because it's not always as simple as that equals that. You know, that is a typology of that. You know, the high priest there means Jesus is the high priest. Well, yes, that's kind of low-hanging fruit in some ways. But how does the whole of the Hebrew scriptures witness to Jesus? That's the interesting thing. That's the bit that takes a little bit more digging out and a little bit more thought and a little bit more consideration. Jesus rebukes them, which was picked out very well, for their lack of faith. And he says, why didn't you know that the, the Messiah had to suffer and enter his glory? That's a very interesting phrase. Suffer and enter his glory. A lot of English translations have... Um, I'm going to check the ESV quickly now because... A lot of English translations put in, and then enter his glory. 
right? I don't know what yours says. If you got, maybe you've got the NIV. Um, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory, says the, the ESV. I think maybe the NIV says, and then enter into his glory. It makes it, is that right? Is that what it, yeah. Now, can you see the difference? The NIV is pushing you towards an understanding that it's suffering first and then glory later. Okay? He suffered and then entered into his glory. The ESV is closer to the Greek, I'm sorry to tell you, because the, it simply says in Greek, suffer and enter glory. Now, obviously, Jesus has glory as the risen and ascended king. Right? He has a glory that John sees and falls on his face as though dead. He has a glory with the Father. But is there another way of thinking about glory? Because John's gospel paints a picture of Jesus' glory as his crucifixion. We sang it, or Jez and the musicians did. This is Jesus in his glory, speaking about the cross. In John 7, Jesus talks about uh, the spirit. Or, uh, actually, well, Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are thirsty, and out of your hearts will flow rivers of living water. And John slips in and says, well, he said that about the spirit, who hadn't been given yet because Jesus wasn't yet glorified. And we immediately think, ah, yes, okay, well, when Jesus goes to heaven, and then acts down comes the Holy Spirit. But in John's way of looking at it, the glory is the cross. And in the Greek text, what it actually, the, the, the sense is that it comes from Jesus' heart, not from yours. Now, why is that important? Well, if we say out of his heart, meaning your heart and my heart will flow rivers of living water, well, great. It means that, well, we receive the Spirit, and this is overflow. But in John's gospel, if, the, if this living water flows from Jesus' heart, well, where do we see that? Well, that is glorification, which is the cross. And in John 19, Jesus is on the cross and the soldier sticks the spear in Jesus' side. And what comes out? Blood and water. That's the moment. There is rivers of living water that flow from Jesus' heart, literally from his side. Okay? So there's glory. That's showing you something about the glory of Jesus. There's glory with the Father, but this is glory too, in that he is the crucified Messiah. John shows you that, Mark shows you that, and here in Luke we get to see it as well. How has Luke shown us in the rest of Luke's gospel that glory and suffering belong together? Well, I want to suggest to you, uh, I'm nicking stuff from a professor in Durham University, Walter Mobley, that the, um, somebody know Walter Mobley there? Oh, Durham, woohoo! All right, just Durham. <laughs> it's like, sorry, Walter. <laughs> there was a cheer. I thought it was for you. <laughs> he would enjoy the irony of that. If you look through the whole of the, the passion scene in Luke, okay, so from Gethsemane through to the cross, even through to this point, Jesus is led away, and Peter's there in the courtyard, and Jesus is under intense pressure. He's being questioned. And the cock crows, and Peter's blown it, right? But look at what it says about Jesus in that moment. Remember, Jesus is under intense pressure. And in verse 61, Luke 22, verse 61, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Now, on one level, you might think, oh, that's a, oh. You know, the way that I look at my son sometimes when 
for the 17th time he hasn't done what he was told. But this is not a look of, oh, this is a look of love. In the moment of Jesus' greatest pressure, he remembers his friend and he looks, Peter. Okay? So there's one hint of suffering and glory. His, in his suffering, we see his glory, which is his other's focused love in obedience to the Father. As he's being led away to be crucified, the women weep and wail because, he is, uh, because he's being led off to be crucified. And Jesus says, daughters of, Jer- daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Okay, so he has compassion on those who are mourning for him suffering and glory that's a little evidence of jesus glory in his sufferings when he is lifted up on the cross jesus says father forgive them for they know not what they do in his suffering he's thinking of others that's his glory suffering and glory one of the one of the, the criminals on the cross says remember me when you come into your kingdom with your glory and jesus says today You'll be with me in paradise. He's suffering. It's his glory. He's thinking about others. So we see a picture being painted throughout Luke's narrative. But then Jesus explains, was it not necessary that the Christ must suffer and enter glory? They know all the facts, but they're confused. Because for them, as was touched on, a Messiah is someone who comes in and spanks the Romans. And establishes a kingdom and raises Israel up again and restores the people. They're not expecting a suffering Messiah. But Jesus shows us that a suffering Messiah is a glorious Messiah. And the glorious Messiah in his suffering is vindicated in his resurrection. So that forevermore his glory is found in that he is the the crucified and risen Jesus. There's only one Jesus, yeah? The crucified and risen Jesus. He's not just the risen Jesus, and he's not just the crucified Jesus. He's Jesus Christ, crucified and raised from the dead. He's the Jesus of the creeds. I'm preaching the gospel. You're not helping. (laughs) You are helping. Yes, it's... One Jesus. Or think about... Okay, this is maybe unpopular. Revelation 4. Okay. This is a very popular song. It's great. Lovely. Um, <laughs> in Revelation chapter 4 John, John is there he's getting this vision of the throne room and an elder says to John behold the lion of the tribe of Judah okay. and it says that I turned and looked and what does John see a lamb looking as though it's been slain how many animals are there in the throne room, not counting the living creatures with wings and all the rest of it. One. What is it? A lamb. So it, the lion of Judah is the lamb that was slain. And that's how God shows his lion-like regal authority in his weakness and vulnerability. He's slain, but he's standing. Okay? It's not that he's one thing and then he's another. He's Aslan and then he's, I don't know, Reaper Cheap. He's sort of... Yeah. <laughs> He's the lamb that was slain. And that's how we see his glory. And the lion doesn't show up at all in the rest of Revelation, actually. The lamb dominates the landscape. He's the lamb who was slain. And therein is his glory. 
Okay? So Luke shows us, and we learn from Jesus, that suffering and glory is not one then another, that we're done with the suffering bit now, and we can get on with the glory, that suffering and glory go together. Or perhaps you could think about Peter. I think it's maybe in 1 Peter 4. It says, if you suffer for the sake of Jesus, then the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Wow, that's different, right? I thought the spirit of glory and of God resting upon you meant soaking and listening to Bethel on the floor or singing or tongues or healings. But no, if you suffer for the sake of Jesus, then the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you because that's the way of the Messiah Jesus, suffering and glory. They come together in the person of Jesus, not one, then another, both and Jesus shows us that. And Jesus shows us that somehow by interpreting the Hebrew scriptures for us. And there's all kinds of ways that we could go into that. I'm sort of loath to sort of open the, the door on it anyway, because we'll be here for forever. Tomorrow we're going to look at a psalm, by the way, and we'll talk about a psalm from this kind of speak, the Old Testament speaking of Jesus. But for the time being, let's just hold that in our hearts, suffering glory. And that's what we get called to walk in. We get called to follow Jesus in that. Perhaps the take, bless, break, give also suggests something of that. He takes us. Oh, Lord, woohoo, you've taken me. I've been blessed. Amazing. And then he breaks me. Ow. And then he gives me. He doesn't break me and leave me broken. He breaks me and gives me because God took Jesus and blessed him and broke him and gave him for the sake of the world. And he takes his church and blesses and breaks and gives them. And week by week as we break bread, we get to enact that very same thing. A people whose suffering glory is for the sake of the world that reflects the majesty and the beauty and the glory of the suffering and ascended Jesus. Wonderful. Poor. Like a little Pentecostal moment there. <laughs> Um, just to give you an idea, this is what I'm working from. <laughs> I thought if I did this, then it would be different than having pages and pages and reams and reams of notes, which that proves to be true, but yeah, slightly less simple. Um, I think that we're going to call it quits. From, in terms of me spouting stuff out, questions. Do you want to ask? We've got a mic. We'll, do, we'll record the questions as well. Um, we'll have a roving thing. We've maybe got sort of five, five minutes or so. Um, I know sometimes you were very vocal earlier on. Anything that you want to ping up now? We've kind of done Luke 24 and some. So um, anyone got anything they want to comment or question? Yeah. My beautiful assistant will... You know, when you came to the middle point of the resurrection, yeah. when where, and you know, that makes sense to me, but when you're reading the Bible on your own, is there a way to kind of determine that or spot that? Or? That's a brilliant question. Yeah, okay. So, so here's the thing. If you want to look out for literary structures, look out for, well, I mean, one of the key things is to look out for repeated phrases. Um, look, look at the way that passages begin and end. 
Um, see if you can spot anything that sort of gives away, ah, oh, okay, that might be a, that might be a, a, a little structure. Um, one of the words that biblical scholars use is an inclusio. It basically means an envelope. And so sometimes you'll, get, you'll, you'll have a passage that is meant to be a whole passage that's marked out by a very, very similar phrase at the beginning and then at the end. Um, and your Bibles, I mean, you've, you've all got them. You know, the, the, the editors of, of the Bible that you use have sometimes helpfully inserted little headings like Jesus is buried um, because you wouldn't notice that from just reading the text itself, would you? Um, and, and that is, well, that can be helpful, but sometimes it can obscure things. Um, I've started reading this. I'm, I'm still answering your question. I'm not just, <laughs> I've started reading a Bible that's got, it's called the Reader's Bible. Right? It's got no verse numbers at all or other headings. It just gives you a chapter number. Um, even the chapter numbers weren't added until the 12th century, 13th century. Did you know that? Our modern chapter division is derived from the 13th century, from scholastic work on the scriptures. So there, there were headings that some people like, um, Athan- not Athanasius, um, Anselm, thank you very much, yeah, had, had used. But nothing, not quite like what we've got. And I find it brilliant because you have to really pay attention. And it's like reading a book, and it's quite absor- absorbing, but it's, um, it's useful because you start to notice, ah, I recognize that. Uh, part of it is just going, growing familiar with the text, learning to spot, and what we did, picking out the details, looking for what's actually there, and then asking the question, why is that significance? significant? Why has the author bracketed that bit like that? Uh, the Gospels are brilliant places to spot this. Um, the, the chiastic or chiastic, however you want to pronounce it. We have a little Greek lady in our church who would call it chiastic. Um, I don't want to drench the front row in phlegm, so I'll stick to chiastic. Um, Mark's gospel's got tons. So you have Jesus going into Jerusalem, Mark chapter 11, and he rides in and he's, he sees a fig tree and there's no figs on it which is an allusion to Jeremiah, by the way. And then he curses the fig tree and he goes into the temple and turns over the tables and then he comes out of the temple and blow me down. The fig tree is withered. So you've got fig tree, fig tree, temple action in the middle. And nine times out of 10, we just kind of think, oh, that's a bit weird, Jesus, the fig tree thing. And we want to make the turning over the tables about Jesus cleaning up the worship of Jerusalem. He's not. He's saying the temple is finished. He's coming down. He's acted out the destruction of the temple that actually then happened in AD 70. And the cursing of the fig tree and the withering of the fig tree, either side of that moment, illustrate that point. Okay? So Mark's showing you, look, this is not just reform. This is judgment. He's acting out judgment on the temple. There's tons and tons of ways that Mark does that. One of them was the the daughter in Mark chapter 5 again. Loads of them. I mean, even Mark begins with... The heavens being torn open, and then it ends with the curtain being torn open, or torn from top to bottom. Okay, tear and tear. You notice ways that this literature, this piece of work has been structured that is supposed to give you a clue to what it means. Particularly with that, because when the heavens are torn open, it's when Jesus comes up out of the waters, and the Spirit descends upon him. And then in uh, there's only one place in the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, where the heavens are torn. And it's Isaiah chapter 64, where Isaiah says, oh, that you would tear the heavens and come down, longing for God to come. And so Jesus is baptized and the heavens are torn. And the spirit, this is God coming down. And then at the cross, the 
curtains torn. And you get to see in the way that Mark structured his gospel, this is what it looks like for God to come down. This is the answer of Isaiah's longing. Oh, that you would tear the heavens. Oh, here he is. Okay, so noticing little bits like that. On, um, when are we? Today's Friday, is it? Yep, Sunday morning, uh, if, you, if you come back, uh, we're going to look at a, a passage from Deuteronomy that's got a great example of this sort of envelope of a, of a phrase at the beginning and the end that helps us to make sense of the stuff in the middle. Um, so it's looking out for things like that. Repetition, literary structures, um, the way that words are used. Here's, here's another one. In Luke chapter 1 and 2, um, you've got the, what's called the birth narrative of Jesus, even though it doesn't actually describe his birth, which would be a bit weird. Um, but it's the text that refers to the birth of Jesus. And what, you, what Luke gives you is this old, righteous, childless couple called Zechariah and Elizabeth, yeah? And immediately you're supposed to think, who else is there who's described like that? Elderly, childless, righteous, <gasps> Abraham and Sarah. Oh, so it's an Abraham and Sarah-like story. It's not, they're the new Abraham and Sarah, but you're supposed to think, ah, okay, yeah, like that. And then all the way through the story about the angel appearing to Zechariah and the temple and all the rest of it, there are seven mentions of Yahweh, seven references to the Lord. Okay? And it's always the Lord God of Israel that's being referred to, every single one. And then the angel comes to Mary. And there's all the, the wonder and stuff of you're going you're gonna to give birth to the Messiah. And then there's this gap where presumably the conception occurs in the darkness. Right? The gap in the text. The angel goes and then there's a gap. And in that gap, in that darkness, wonderful things happen. <laughs> the Messiah is conceived in the gap in the text. And then you get Mary going to Elizabeth. And what does Elizabeth say? What is this that the mother of my Lord should come to me. Whoa! Luke's just gone, Lord, 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 Lord. And it's the God of Israel. And then, bam! The embryo that Mary's carrying is called Lord. Also, this is great. She's filled with the Holy Spirit. She's filled with the Holy Spirit and says, what is this? Another one? So it kind of suggests that you can only really recognize that Jesus is Lord with the Holy Spirit, which Paul would agree with in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, by the way. So Lord. And then, Yada, 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 John the Baptist, Mary's song. Da, 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 da. The angels appear to the shepherds, the nobodies, the statusless people in the world. And says, today in Bethlehem, the city of David has been born to you, a saviour who is Christ, the Lord. Now, what? You sit back and you look at that phrase, saviour. Well, that's a title that belongs to the Lord God of Israel in the Old Testament. He's Christ. So the saviour is now the king, the messiah. The anointed one. And he is Lord. So all these titles come together. He's been born. What? And this is Jesus. And they go and they worship him. And then this little throwaway phrase. When they go, after eight days, it says that they named the child Jesus in obedience to what the angel said. Now look at what's happened there. We've gone from the Lord God of Israel, a recognition given by the Spirit that the embryo in your uterus is the Lord, to the birth of the Messiah, who is a saviour, king, Lord. And then they call him Jesus. And in Luke, what it means is that from that point onwards, you cannot separate 
Jesus from Lord. The identity of Jesus and the identity of the Lord God of Israel are brought together. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Here it is. Now that is called theology in narrative form. Okay? What, it's, what he's doing is he's show, by telling a story and by picking out the details, you're seeing theologically the freight and the weight and the boom of this moment where suddenly Jesus is now associated with the Lord and, and can't not be. He's been called Jesus and that's concrete there. You see? Does that help you with your... Yeah. <laughs> so I told you I get excited about these things. Any, any other questions or things? Oh, go on. We'll go, f- we'll go here, the front film. Yeah. So in, in that case, um, Luke, he wrote that. Mm-hmm. Is that his idea? Has he understood all this stuff about chiasms and stuff? Or is it the Holy Spirit who's done that? Or both? Yeah, it's, it's both. Yeah. You don't need to worry about... Sometimes people get a little bit, oh, I'm not sure about this in terms of human authorship and crafting and the Spirit's work and doctrines of Scripture. It's important to understand that doctrines of Scripture are what, what I'd call pre-hermeneutic. Okay? They're, they're things that come before reading of the text. Okay? We make a decision about it and then we read things through that, that lens sometimes. I think that it's absolutely beautiful that the Spirit works to inspire someone to write and to structure in this way. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. There is very much an earthiness and a a, a kind of concreteness about the way that Scripture is given to us. And caring about the Word means caring about the way that God has chosen to speak to us which means caring about the structure and the grammar and the detail, okay? The Bible's not like this gigantic spiritual fortune cookie that you can rip away the out, because nobody eats a fortune cookie, right? You all want to get to the bit in the middle and have a giggle. <laughs> I don't think, you, you know, you want to have a giggle about Scripture, but it's not about ripping away the packaging to get to what it really means. And then, yeah, we've got the meaning, which is inner, internal, and it's all about the spirit and soul, and you know, there we are. No, no, no. God's given us a witness to himself in words. And so loving God means caring enough about the words to pay attention to what they actually say. And the structure that is there. Um, How did Luke know what Mary said or sang? Mary's song, the Magnificat. He wasn't there. How did he know? Oh, yeah, maybe she told him, perhaps. But did he know Mary? Perhaps, maybe, perhaps. When did Luke write? Well, maybe quite a lot later. Okay. It's all right. The Spirit inspires the process. Now, the whole thing of the, the kind of Abraham and Zechariah type story is really, really important. Not Abraham, it's Abraham and Sarah type story. Luke tells us what his agenda is right from the beginning. Look at the very first few verses of Luke's Gospel. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, right? What does that mean? There were many written up versions in some way, shape or form of the accounts of Jesus, right? Many. 
just as those who, were from, who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Okay, so there are eyewitness accounts and there are other accounts. And then Luke says, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Um, so Luke is an editor, a compiler. He's a redactor, to use technical language. He takes all these accounts and he puts together an account. Here it is. And then he says, this is really interesting, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. That's the ESV putting a spin on the text. The word is that you may know the truth concerning what you've been taught. In other words, there are more and less reliable accounts of Jesus doing the rounds. What Luke has done is put together an account for Theophilus, who may be one man or may refer to a community of disciples or may, may just be some cipher for someone who loves God, because that's what the word means, lover of God. Luke wants Theophilus to know the truth. And so he compiles a narrative. He's followed things. There's other narratives, but this one is so that you may know the truth. And this, together, is the book, the collection of documents that we confess as Christian scripture which is authoritative for faith and practice in the Christian church. Therefore, that canonical document is authoritative for us, however it has come to us. Okay? However much Luke is involved, the Spirit is involved, or both are involved, we don't know because we don't get to get in behind and see all the processes and go, oh, well, there's the Spirit over there. We read, we're transformed. We're on a journey like Cleopas and his friend. From knowing facts, to having hearts burned, to having eyes opened, to proclaiming that he is alive. Uh, you're falling asleep, so I'm going to stop. And I could go on and on and on, but there's time tomorrow for that as well. Okay, have a great afternoon.